0: We're the Westlaw Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports, with thoughts, analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above, as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John LaCombe, and I'm Eric Skos-Gauspo. Uh Skuz, before we get started, I have to ask, how's uh, how's your blood pressure? Has it come down a little bit since uh, since the weekend? Yeah, you know it's funny. Uh, a lot of people
1: have asked me that not surprising at no point really in that game. Did I like freak out a lot? I mean, I was kind of resigned as like when that punt got blocked, I was kind of resigned to things going the way they did. What eight years ago in the, uh, 10 season. When, um, Brett Favre threw a pick with what? 20 seconds left in field yeah. goal range. Uh, in, in a tie in New game, Orleans, nonetheless, in New Orleans, nonetheless. And then, um, Six months later, you jackasses took me there for my bachelor party, and I had to see giant posters of Drew Brees all over around town. But um that, no, did, I, that was we, actually. Did we not ply
0: you with enough liquor to to make that feel better?
1: I was going to say no. That was actually pretty awesome. Okay, um, <laughs> but regardless, i I didn't think it was going to go the way it was. It just it just felt like a long, slow drag into Vikings misery in the second half, and. With, like, moments of, of a little bit of hope, like, like Zimmer and staff just looked like a staff that had never won a playoff game. And this was actually the first time an, a former Bengals assistant has won a playoff game since uh, uh, Walsh left the, the Bengals, like, many, many, many years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, that being said, when the play happened, I was just kind of incredulous and not expecting it at all. I had gotten this inkling that somehow the Vikings were going to win because my recording, like I had to switch from, from one recording entity to a second recording entity. And I saw a picture of the field and heard Joe Buck say, the saints are gone. And then I kind of expected the saints to miss the field. goal. I was watching on delay. Basically Uh, I expected them to miss the field goal and they didn't. I was like, well, not what did, did we actually lose? Oh my God. And then I saw it play out and the catch from Diggs, And um, yeah, it's incredible. I, I will also say that I've seen this team in the NFC championship a couple times before. Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for us to break through to the next level. And, you know, I've said this before many times. I've said this with Northwestern. I've said this with the Chicago Blackhawks. I've said this with uh, the Chicago Cubs uh, most especially. Exercising demons is hard. It takes it takes crap like what happened in that at the end of that game, and um, who knows if they'll actually do it and get there to, to the promised land. But it's got to it's got to start with something like that. So, um, I, I the the other the one other thing I'll mention is that at halftime, um, I, was feeling, I was feeling pretty damn good, and in the second half, not only was I you know just bemoaning the fate of what I was watching in front of me, but I was also, by the minute, becoming more and more terrified of the Philadelphia defensive line. So I have two things. I have a statement, and
2: then I have a question for you, Scuzz. My statement is, and correct me if I'm wrong, boys, the extra point, the meaningless kneeling extra point at the end was Austin Carr's first NFL play. Was it not? He was out there. Yeah, He he was out there. I think that crazy ridiculous, worthless play was Austin Carr's oh, first official that, play. That,
0: that play was not worthless. Uh. Yeah. Oh, not worthless. <laughs> or, yeah. It was either worth
2: a lot or worth a negative a lot, depending on which way you bet in the game, yes. Um, but uh, unless he played in London, and I don't think he did, um, this was his first play. So what a, what a weird first play. Second thing, Scuzz, very important question. Which is a bigger deal in your life, the best game-winning play you've seen in U.S. Bank Stadium, or the best game-winning play you've seen in the Metrodome?
1: Oh, um, Metrodome, gotta be right. I mean, it was—it would be Kirby Puckett's walk-off home run in Game Six oh, of 1987.
2: That's not even what I was thinking. You
1: were—you were, you were I, going victory I, right.
2: I was going victory right. Yes. Oh, you were going victory. right. I
1: forgot that was in the Metrodome. Oh yeah, no. I, that 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 uh that is far superior to everything else that was just discussed. <laughs> so I for some reason I like that even crossed my mind and for some reason I was like, well, no, that wasn't in the Metrodome, but um of hey, course te- it was.
2: Teams wearing purple have done miraculous things in in Minnesota Football Stadiums is is my point. And and shout out to Kirby Puckett as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll also just mention like I was at I was at lunch today and over the shoulder of my lunch companions, um, was Randy Moss interviewing Adam Thielen on ESPN, which I just thought like the whole post playing Randy Moss experience is amazing to me and hysterical and the guy is actually really, really good at it. Uh but he's still gonna kinda, kinda got like he's got his Randy Moss uh way of of speaking and an accent and he's kind of just like a kid in a candy store and i just i I love it so much
2: i can't get enough rainy moss that dude could not be more country if he was sleeping on a bale of hay he is just west virginia country all the way i love it he uh,
1: he will be my favorite like my favorite nfl
0: player for all time like hands down well, uh, definitely, uh, I'm rooting for the Vikings this weekend. Um, definitely hope uh, they can knock off the Eagles. And, you know, yeah, that, that Eagles defense does look pretty stout. But, uh, you know, the Vikings defense is also really, really good. And Nick Foles is no Drew Brees. Um, Nick Foles is no Carson Wentz. And I think that's... He, he might be no uh, Case Keenum. I mean, Case he, Keenum is, has...
1: We talked about him in college. Like, the guy was spectacular at houston that you know we I, I we documented on this podcast what that 30 30 point win that he put up over over penn state in the cotton bowl yeah um or maybe that was the ticket city classic i can't remember but the the dude's legit and has i mean he, he he's put together not a not a year where everyone's like oh man case keen i'm like this is what am i trying to say um He's just really good. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he he is able to attack defenses and throw down field and looks reasonable under pressure. Like he's not, you know, Tom Brady, but he's who is? Not, I mean, he, he's not Blake Bortles either. Well, I mean, good God,
2: Blake Blake Bortles. It's an insult to Nick Foles to compare him to Blake Bortles, but I do think there is a very clear pecking order here. And right, I mean. Brady's way above everybody. I think Keenum is well above Foles, and Foles is above Bortles. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it could be the next three or four years bears out that Case Keenum is the real deal, and I don't think it that that would be too big of a surprise to anybody. But yeah, I am praying the Vikes get by the Eagles, not just for you scuzz, but because
0: uh, I think they give they have a better shot at the Pats than anybody. And you know. Of course, you're assuming that uh, New England takes out Jacksonville.
2: I... hey, the spirit may the spirit of Jason Mendoza. I don't know if you guys are good place people. oh or not, my God,
0: I love the good place. That's an amazing show. If you're not watching it, you should be you should be watching it, but Jason mendoza, the as I think
2: the ringer called him, the village idiot of the show is a diehard Jaguars fan, and it's so perfect for his character and and there's a lot of speculation that the good place is willing the Jaguars. Uh, onward but uh but you I mean there could be anything the the Jaguars could have a voodoo doll with a pin that they're sticking into it but one of these teams still has Tom Brady
0: and the other still has Blake Bortles <laughs> <laughs> uh, I well I always love uh, championship weekend for for the NFL that, that's always a lot of fun seeing uh, who's going to go to the Super Bowl and then that just interminable two week wait until the the overhype of the game finally collapses into uh first quarter of a super bowl that everyone is ultra tight and then it finally can loosen up into an actual game. Um but uh yeah, championship weekend is always a good time. So, definitely looking forward to that. We are uh you might tell we're kind of stalling here a little bit as <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a theme. <laughs> uh hey I I got one one more one more stall.
1: <laughs> uh if anybody needs a place to stay in Minnesota, um you could probably camp out in my mom's basement uh, for the, for, you know, with the gate, with the game coming up, I will, you know, we'll charge a reasonable rate. A little <laughs> right. a little Airbnb B and B action there. There you go. Hey, and, and, and no cut to Airbnb. Cause we don't, you know, we're not signed up with them. Um, it's not the nicest basement, but Hey,
0: <laughs> so, so yeah, so, uh, Northwestern so, basketball.
2: Yeah. So we're trying to not talk about Northwestern hoops. <laughs>
0: But we must. Yeah, uh, um, you know, as, as we're recording, it stings second half. the nostrils. Yep, we're recording this uh, Wednesday night second half. Uh, Ohio State leading Northwestern fifty-one to thirty-six. Uh, about halfway through the second half, and I just trying to figure out kind of where the wheels came off because you know, kind of going into the season, you know, coming off of just the the magic of last year, you know, we lost lumpkin and we lost tap horn but that was it you know it, it all- i
1: just i we talked about it pre-season and like i've been joking with a lot of people that us being ranked preseason was the kiss of death and we've we've seen that with the football program in the past and uh just like the rarefied air that northwestern was swimming and it just felt like they were you know, starting to start, it's starting to be due for a fall. Um, but to me, the lumpkin thing, and we talked about it before the season, his, his role as not just defender, but team leader. Um, I, I I think we all underrated it and we, and we we talked a lot about the defense component and how big of a deal that was going to be. And that we just didn't have anyone on the team capable of replacing him defensively. We'd have to, we'd have to make up for it on the other end of the court and between cold spells from Lindsay and you know Falzone has not has not been able to to do that uh, to to make up that that loss. We're you know we're getting a little bit more from uh, from Chris Ash and Isaiah Brown, but again, like that that loss took out a huge component of what made Northwestern successful last year. There's been no way to, to pivot, and then on top of it the My understanding is that he was a critical voice in the locker room for this team as a senior as a leader um you know was was arguably the, not just the best defender but the leader on that defense you could argue law is a better defender but uh between his you know his relative role on the team and his leadership that he was just a critical cog, and without him, the team has looked flat. Um, they've looked disjointed. There's certainly been some in- injuries. I, you know, we're not seeing um, the passion. We're not seeing the uh, the intensity in terms of minimizing turnovers and dry, you know delivering assists. Like it's been sloppy basketball. It's been terrible shooting. It's been disconnected. I could go on and on and on, but I just for me it keeps coming back to Sanjay
0: Lumpkin a big thing a big thing that i've noticed is just the utter disparity in in free throws you know you you look at you know northwestern is taking so many fewer free throws than they're allowing and i think that you know we're not we're not tra- we're not driving the net we're not drawing fouls and yet on the other side we're committing a ton of fouls so we're putting other teams on the line and you know we're not getting to the line ourselves
2: Right, I think, you know, if, I mean, that's a big part of it, right, as, as um, the the not getting fouls, but the giving up so many fouls, and, and what's crazy is through the whole first half of the season, as kind of mediocre as things were going, and as much as we were not getting the results we wanted in big games, we were benefiting from some really fortuitously bad free throw shooting by our opponents, um and that was not something that was going to regress to the mean. Our opponents were gonna start to shoot free throws better. Um but it's but it's weird. I mean, I think if you look at the way this team played offensively in the Creighton game, that game was an awesome game, back and forth shootout, um, between two really talented teams and and, you know, a half a month later, the Purdue game fit a very similar profile. It was a really exciting game, up and down. We were not playing good defense, but we were playing um, good offense, and we easily could have won both of those games. But then, you know, it's it's a thing. So one, even during that stretch, the team wasn't playing good defense. And as Scud said, because of Lumpkin, I think his him not being there was a big part of that. But when the injuries happened and when Law got banged up and McIntosh bang, got banged up, that messed with the offensive rhythm. And all of a sudden, this was a team that wasn't playing good defense and wasn't playing offense either. And it's funny, I think of... Um, like it, it, the, you can't overstate the amount of the pressure and scuzz talked about it, you know, being ranked preseason and all the hype and everything being a national story. And I almost kind of juxtapose it with, um, the world cup game when Brazil hosted the world cup against Germany, right. And Germany destroyed them and won what, like seven, seven, nothing or seven, one or something like that. And the, when, the fr- when Germany scored the first goal, it was a shock to Brazil, but when they scored the second goal and Brazil suddenly realized they weren't going to win, goals three, four, and five came within the span of like two minutes, and it was because there was so much pressure on the Brazil team being the host that the moment they realized things were not going to go the way they thought, they just completely collapsed mentally and the bottom just dropped out. And then by the time they were regrouping and even getting themselves back to a sane place, they were down five nothing, and you can't discount that there's some of that going on because once you've got this team and you know the offense isn't clicking, and then everyone's thinking in the back of their mind, oh my gosh, this season that was supposed to be so great is going to pot, and uh, and that's just so tough, you know, to deal with, and and you know, because I kind of think uh, of the football season, our senior year. When we'd won the Big Ten our junior year, we returned just about everybody back. There were extenuating circumstances, but you know the common thread being that like once it got away from us, it was not coming back. And um, once once we
1: gave up that comeback to uh, Penn State, and um, I forget the name of their terrible backup quarterback, but yeah, it it, that that was the wheels came off. You can make a very similar argument for twenty thirteen when we didn't get the you know we we put all our chips on the Ohio State basket and did not win that game. And then just a couple of bad breaks and everything, went, everything to went to hell.
2: Right. And I think, yeah, it's just that feeling of lofty expectations and realizing they're not going to be bad and kind of what that does psychologically. Um, one other thing that I do just want to mention only because there is a parallel here and um I, you know, I want to present this delicately, but I do want to address that there is something of a parallel is, um, one other thing that was hanging over our senior year, the football season was what happened with Rashidi Wheeler. Um, and obviously I don't want to draw a direct parallel between that and the Johnny Vassar situation because Rashidi Wheeler was so much worse. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, Rashidi Wheeler was a cornerback on the football team, the Big Ten championship-winning team our junior year, who then died in an off-season workout running sprints. Um, and it was a horrible tragedy. And, I mean, I remember Rashidi Wheeler. I had played basketball with Rashidi Wheeler. It was a huge tragedy on campus. And it was a tragedy that was that hung over the, the rest of the season. Um, I don't want to make a parallel between that and the Johnny Vassar situation um, because, obviously the Rashidi-Wheeler situation was so much more traffic, tragic and so much more impactful. The one parallel is that the Rashidi-Wheeler situation wasn't just a case of a tragedy that hung over the season. It was a case of, is Northwestern culpable here? Because there was a question of, had, was the fact that that he, the, the workouts, had the workouts, off-season workouts been too intense? Had that precipitated it? Was he given something by the school that he shouldn't have been given? And et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, you know... It, it Did all... the
1: doctor, like, destroy records?
2: Right, right.
1: So there were all these questions of
2: culpability. And again, a lot of it kind of came out. And I think there was a settlement and and they moved on. Um, and, I, well, I don't want to mistake because I don't remember exactly if it was a settlement. But, I mean, like, it was things things progressed from it there. Awful. It was awful. It was awful. It was awful. But in the moment, it was very much a question of is the university culpable for what's going on? And and you know, what's hard to say is 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 that hanging
1: over anything? And again, well, and, that... and I, I John, I think where you're where you're also ultimately going with this is was the coaching staff culpable? And did right. that did the that create a lot of trust and, and everything else that goes into, you know, what you perceive as happening in a locker room. Like, did it, did it cause friction? And I have to imagine it did. Right. Exactly. And again, it's like,
2: we don't know. Um, but we know that that was a huge event that happened and, and that there, there was a question of university culpability and wondering if that mattered. And again, so if you juxtapose that with the Johnny Vassar situation again,
1: or or, or with the union issue in 2013
2: or with the union issue in 2013, Exactly. And it's, again, it's, it's apples and oranges from a seriousness perspective. But what you do have in now is a case where, for anyone who's wondering, the Johnny Vassar situation has not gone away. That capital N-O-T, not gone away. You haven't heard about it in a while, but that's because it's still working its way through the court system. Just in October, uh, the courts ruled in Johnny Vassar's favor that Northwestern was unable to strike previous settlement talks it had made with him from the transcript of the lawsuit um, and Northwestern had tried to strike uh, the records of those proceedings from the current lawsuit and the judge said no that you can't that happened just a couple of months ago <clears throat> so again this thing is very much working its way through the court system and Johnny Vassar's is going to have his day in court and it's you know again I have no idea if it's a, if it's impacting at all but there is that parallel of something, you know, hanging over the program. And again, it could be that it has no effect or whatever, but it, it there is that parallel that is still there.
0: And and let's let's not uh, overlook the other, you know, huge factor and that, you know, we're pl- not playing at home. You know, uh, yeah, you know yeah. the, the All-State Arena factor. And we've talked about that and I'm not trying to... You know, take take away any of of you know, this previous argument, but you know this is definitely a factor. Um, We're not playing at home. Maybe some of the fire that fueled the team last year,
1: like like there's a lot of theories, right? So so the home home court situation. Last year, the team was super hungry. They you know they had this very tangible, obvious goal. Um, that frankly, half of them came to Northwestern to to meet this goal. It's hard to sustain success in in every sport in at every level. It is hard to do it again, to repeat. Um and this isn't, you know, even a championship. It's it's getting to the NCAA tournament, but that's difficult. And when you're not playing at home, you've got this lawsuit. Uh th- there are elevated expectations. And frankly, the team last year had a lot of luck in situations. Yeah you know how, like how many really close games that that came down to a basket you think about the georgia tech game earlier this year uh, you think about having law injured for for oklahoma that probably wouldn't have made a difference but <laughs> still not. like that like you can't discount the the reversion to the mean so there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors here and you know i think early on in the season we were we were saying hey it's not you know yeah we're seeing red flags but it's it's not dramatically different from what we expected and we need you know time for this team to gel and figure it out and they they simply haven't and i think what's what i'm noticing on twitter is is folks talking a lot about you know the body language from chris collins and he looks like he's kind of resigned to the way that this has has uh has started to go um i mean at this point short of a of a big 10 tournament championship the cats are not going to the tournament um it's it's just not plausible and that's got to be a huge disappointment for everyone
2: yeah it's just again just to, to go back again i just think you know you look back at our senior year scus and you think zach kustak damian anderson and sam simmons all started for that football team and and they did and the team achieved nothing and it's going to be the same thing i mean it's it's Vic law brian mcintosh and scotty Lindsay. it's <laughs> it's all these heroes you know and we're going to be like Oh, yeah, and that team with all those same guys didn't achieve the following year. It's just strange.
1: Once again, some major defensive uh, graduations. Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne, Missouri, Conrad, Emmerich. Um, just the, the two that jump off the page to me. There, I know there were several others, but,
0: uh, yeah, I don't know. Interesting parallels. Yeah, Teddy Greenstein tweeted earlier tonight um, that the Northwestern is the 2006 Chicago White Sox. Similar situation, you know, coming off the – their world series and completely collapsed and faded into nothingness where they have continued to remain to this day. Um, I'm not that I'm saying that Northwestern is going to fade into nothingness forever. I just I'm hoping and this is probably just me being overly optimistic. I'm hoping that this is an aberration year and then next year in in the in the new Welsh Shrine arena yeah you know, with the big with the
2: biggest recruiting class Northwestern's ever pulled in. Exactly.
0: Right? Yep. Right. Hey, you know, we
1: we won a bowl game for the first time, and the following year we were questioning. The following two years, we were questioning, was that the aberration or is that the new standard? And right. it's taken almost five years to answer that question, uh, or at least or at least feel good about the positive side of that coin. And and it might take that long with the basketball team. And you know, we'll see if Collins is still here for it, or or if he moves on, or uh, you know, by Requirement or uh, by
0: his own volition, and yeah, yeah. So I mean the the season's not over, and let's be very clear. You know, we're we're not packing in the season. You know, there's still opportunities. You know, this team still has paths to success, even if it's not the 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 big dance. You know, they can still, you know, have a great run in, you know, the back half of the Big Ten schedule, you know, if there is an opportunity to make a run in the Big Ten tournament. And heck, you know, even if it is the NIT or, or something to that effect, you know, making a run into the postseason, you know, that, that helps with recruiting. That helps, you know, continue to build the program. And, you know, the future is bright for this team. And, you know, if, if this is, you know, this is a wonky year, we, we, we can't think that the sky is falling uh, just because of this b- it being a bit of a wonky year. Uh want to kind of pivot again um, back to football here. Uh, we had talked uh, in, in previous weeks of uh, some of the coaching changes. you uh, your Tim McGarrigal, Louis, Louis Ianni coming on board. McGarrigal. I uh, got to love it. Got to so, love sorry, it. Sorry. I have to No, it, it, that's fair. I, I, I think that uh, it You'd probably be fired if you didn't. So, uh, you know, these guys coming on, you know, we very, very excited. We did hear, however, of uh, another change uh, coming to the Northwestern coaching staff that uh, I I don't know if we had expected. Um, You know, Randy Bates uh, leaving. He's our linebackers coach. He's now going to be the defensive coordinator at Pitt, uh, going to coach under Pat Narduzzi. Great opportunity for him. I mean, he's been uh, the linebackers coach here for a really, really long time. And he's done a great job. I mean, think of all the the great linebackers that's that come through uh, that he's coached. You know, Anthony Walker obviously leading the charge there. But, uh, you know, him going to Pitt obviously opens up another hole on the the coaching staff. Whether or not uh, that means McGarrigal, you know, he came in to coach the safeties uh, whether he'll, you know, instead coach the linebacker, there, there's still a lot that remains to be seen. We have another coaching uh, position to hire for, uh, and, you know, obviously no timetable on when that might be. But, you know, the the second wave of recruiting is, is, is fast approaching. I mean, the, the, the second signing day, if you will, is, you know, first week in February. That's just a few weeks away. So uh, I, I I just want to laud Randy Bates um, a little bit more. Like I, I, he has
1: been a really really great great recruiter. His development of the linebacking core um, over the years. So you know Nick Roach was somebody that Fitzgerald coached quite a lot, um, but then went on and had a great you know a, a bit of a of an NFL career. David Nwabusi, um Nick Williams, Damian Proby chi 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 uh and and some of these guys especially the middle linebacker position the the turnover at that position has been kind of dramatic for Northwestern when you step back and look at it you know Proby was kind of a surprise starter Walker had to had to come in before his time to to fill in for injuries and you know Patty Fisher then coming in this year as a freshman I, at what what Bates has been able to do has been extremely impressive and I, I think this is a this is a great validation of that that he's going to be the defensive coordinator Um he gets to study under Pat Narduzzi uh, who, the head coach at, at Pitt that you know engineered a lot of the success of the Michigan State defense under D'Antonio in the last decade so you know I, I think we, we've talked a lot about I don't know if frustration is the right word but I don't think any of us really love the way that Fitzgerald and and team have, have touted, Oh, we've had no major staffing, like no staffing changes since 2008. And obviously McCall is generally the focus of our ire, but if nobody's trying to hire your coaches, that's not a great sign either in, in this day and age in college. So I, I I think this is a great opportunity for Bates. I think it speaks well to um, Fitz and developing his coaches I think the other interesting angle here, you know, also knowing that McPherson, who's, you know, been working with the running backs into great effect, has moved over to the defensive side, was originally a defensive player, you wonder if they're grooming him a little bit, um, to potentially take over for Hankowitz someday. And if this was a you know, one guy stays and one guy ultimately has to leave to go to go be a DC. I'm I'm not totally sure. Obviously, if Bates is getting the opportunity now. McPherson hasn't gotten there yet. But I'm just I'm just reading the tea leaves a little bit and thinking about some of the the longer term development that um, the coaching staff might be thinking about. But bottom line, Bates was a, a great
0: developer and a great recruiter, and we're certainly going to miss him. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of his, his recruiting uh, prowess, I mean, he was really key in, in recruiting Texas. Um, and, you know, that has been such a huge, such a wonderful uh, proving ground for the Cats, which, you know, I, as you think about it, is, is kind of odd, considering that, you know, we're able to go down to Texas and convince these kids that grew up in, you know, the, the heat of, of Texas to come up to the, the cold of Illinois. Um, John, you took a really deep dive into, uh, kind of the Northwestern recruiting, uh, kind of by the numbers. Uh, this post just went up on westlawpirates.com today. Uh, I encourage everyone to, to head over there and, and take a look at it. But, uh, uh, John, you, you took a really interesting look at, you know, how Northwestern is recruiting kind of four and five star players, um, and, where they're coming from and who we're competing with and you know kind of if you could nutshell that for us before we uh really kind of dive into this conversation love to kind of get that kind of whittled down a little bit sure so it's you know it's funny there are so many different ways
2: you could do a deep dive statistically into recruiting and um there's so many different angles i mean one of you know a whole other angle that's not even covered is okay just like you said sammy like. You know, how are we unearthing those Texas gems? You know, a Venrick Mark kind of guy, um, uh, a Patty Fisher kind of guy. You know, what is the profile of the kind of guy that a Randy Bates is going down into Texas and grabbing, et cetera? What I wanted to focus on, and and part of this was I was looking for a great diversion, something to carry us through the the winter months as, as basketball is clearly not going to be that thing this year, um, was, yeah, taking a deep dive with a goal of being like, okay— If we look at all the four- and five-star, although Northwestern's never signed a five-star recruit, but a four-star, four- or five-star recruits Northwestern has signed over, let's say, the the last 15 years, Um, what is the profile of that guy? You know, if if we're going to look at at all the four-star guys we've brought in, the guys who have been the real bell cows of these recruiting classes, guys we all point to on signing day and be like, ah, look at that guy. He's the jewel of the class. What is the profile of that player? Is there a certain way that we could look at the stats over the course of this 15-year period and come to determination of the kind of elite recruit um, most likely to side with Northwestern? And and I think, you know, after plumbing through the stats a little bit, I was able to to kind of narrow down a couple of those categories.
1: Yeah, John, I thought it was really interesting, like, you, you, you started by kind of outlining, hey, here are... Here, here are all the schools that have beaten us and how many times they beat us versus well, I don't know that you had the number of times that we beat them but for you know for all the offers that we've made to four stars where have we generally lost people to and um you know the obvious Ohio State Penn State Michigan uh, teams are are up there but you quickly centered on Stanford and Notre Dame as as the two most important competitors for northwestern and I think what was most interesting to me was the scenarios in which we fare poorly against those schools and the scenarios in which we are on much more even footing with those schools. Right. And I think, and by the way,
2: I encourage anybody, um, as because this, there's so much in this article. I mean, I think, you know, it, it flows, but there's a lot here and, um, it may be helpful for for you to go to westlawpirates.com and pull up this piece as you're listening to the pod just so you can get an idea of what we're talking about but but right like one of the things that Scuzz said is uh Northwestern has offered uh, over the past 15 years has offered close to 300 four and five star players scholarships and one point that I made that that we all found out about this past year was Northwestern offers the second fewest amount of scholarships to football players Um, in the country. We talked about it just last week, and we talked about Louis Aini coming from Iowa State, who offers more scholarships than other teams, any other school in the country, to Northwestern, which offers the second fewest, and what kind of change that'll make for him. But the point is, for the purpose of this article, if Northwestern's offering you a scholarship, we are serious about you. We're not just offering it just to offer it. We seriously are considering everyone we offer a scholarship to. So that's about 300 four- and five-star players over the past 15 years. And like Scuzz said, Notre Dame towers above this group. We've lost 32 uh, players. We've offered scholarships to their four- and five-star players to Notre Dame. Um, The next closest is Stanford with 22. And then you get the aforementioned Michigan, Penn State, uh, and Ohio State, 23, 21, 17. Um, But one of the points that, that I wanted to try to make, and Scott's kind of alluded to it, is the Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State group, you're just talking about all the best schools in the Big Ten for football, traditionally. Um, Yes, we know Michigan has great academics, but if a player we're targeting chooses Michigan for football, we have no way of knowing if that player, we know that that player had the academic credentials to play for Northwestern, but we have no way of knowing if that player actually was making his college choice based on, you know, making it as a largely academic decision. Basically, he may just want to play for Michigan because Michigan's really good at football. But you see these Notre Dame and Stanford numbers at the top of the list, and they really jump out at you. Way more uh, losing, way more um, players we've offered to Notre Dame than any other school, and then Stanford being up above all the powers of the Big Ten. And and right, I think when I dug deeper into those numbers, that's when things got interesting because what you immediately see is the majority of four-star guys who have ever signed with Northwestern had either a Stanford offer, a Notre Dame offer or both. Um, and like you said, guys, you see that um, obviously by and large, we are losing um, the, the battles against Notre Dame and the battles against Stanford. Um, most of the time when we're going head to head with those schools and a recruit is picking either us or them. Um, but when you bring it into the Midwest and you bring it into the cold weather, um, our chances of landing those players get really good really quickly.
1: Yeah, I think he's, you ultimately landed on like one out of four recruits that ultimately chooses between Northwestern and, and Notre Dame. In the Midwest, not in Indiana, is is likely to pick Northwestern, and that's a, that's a pretty good rate when you think about the histories of these programs and um, – the, the, the types of players that, that each program has has generally got on the recruiting trail. And I think there's far fewer examples, but when we're competing with Stanford in a cold weather state, it's almost 50-50. Right, it is. I mean, that's the the flip side. But there's only like two guys. <laughs> right, well, the flip side is if so,
2: and this is talked about um, in part five of this piece that's up, is um, that, right, we're something like three for 27 going against Stanford for four and five star recruits when the recruit chooses one of the two schools. And you know, if a recruit is choosing between Stanford and Northwestern, they're making it probably based on an academic mixing the want, wanting high level football and top level academics. But we three times they've ch- chosen Northwestern, 24 times they've chosen Stanford. The reason for that is we're 0 for 20 when we go against Stanford for a warm state recruit. And it's just kids who grow up in warm weather don't want to go to play in Northwestern when they could go to play at Stanford. It's just that simple. But like Scuzz said, the flip side is, in the Midwest or the Northeast, um, when we've gone against Stanford um, and the recruit has picked either Northwestern or Stanford, we've won 50% of the time. And that's we've lost three players, and the three players we've gotten are Patrick Ward, Afadi Denebo, and Garrett Dickerson. So these are clearly big, important battles that are going on. Um, and uh, and those three guys kind of fit the profile of the kind of player that we're going to beat Stanford for at least half of the time.
0: Hey John, I got I got to interrupt you here real quick. Um, there's 30 seconds left in this basketball game, and the Cats have cut it to three. Uh, yeah.
1: So they they were listening
0: to us. They got mad.
2: <laughs>
1: they were te- te- technically four now as Ohio State is shooting free throws, but fair enough. Uh, they.
2: Yeah, hey, they they were listening. They are saying, no, we're turning it around right now. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> spinning – and, and you know, the whole second part of this basically was, like Scuzz said, you know, the math isn't exactly cut and dry. But when you really get into the stats, it kind of comes down to a Midwest football recruit who's not from the state of Indiana and does not attend a Catholic high school because Notre Dame's pull with the Catholic
1: school kids across the country <laughs> for, like – I, was I, believe through- I believe you described it as
0: Notre Dame is catnip for Catholic school, high school kids.
2: Let's, let's put it this
0: way. Not, not everyone though. I mean, Note- ask friend of the pod, Bo Sizik, if he, uh, if he felt hey, that way.
2: Tr- fair enough. But let's put it this way. Like Jimmy Clawson, uh when he went to Notre Dame, his high school was Notre Dame high school. So like when it's hard to say that like a kid like that, isn't going to have a pull And, And that it's all over the country. I mean, there are Catholic schools everywhere. And but it's important. And one of the things that that I talk about in the piece is when you look up and you see that a kid from a local high school has a Northwestern offer and a Northwestern offer, don't freak out. What you should freak out is if you see we're targeting some kid from California and that kid also has a Northwestern offer, we're almost certainly not going to get that kid. That kid is going to pick Northwestern. If I mean, he's going to pick Notre Dame if he's going to pick one of the two schools. Their just name recognition carries farther than ours does. Um, but, like Scott said, if it's a public school, Midwest, uh, non-Indiana kid, and we go against Notre Dame for that kid, we get him about one quarter of the time. So, the final bit of the equation, in terms of spinning it forward, is when a recruit has a Northwestern, and a uh, Notre Dame offer, how often does that recruit pick one of those two schools? In other words, how often does he pick Northwestern or Notre Dame, and how often does he pick any other school other than those two that offered him? And basically, he picks either Northwestern or Notre Dame one out of every four times. So, in other words, if you have a given class of recruits, and there are four players from the Midwest who attend public schools— who have Northwestern and Notre Dame offers, odds are one of them is going to pick either Northwestern or Notre Dame. And we have about a 25% chance of getting that kid. And again, the Midwest is a big place. So that's a situation that could come up surprisingly frequently. And the very final part of this piece was spinning all of this forward um, into potential categories of recruits. So, you know, category one guys from illinois we usually have a 20 percent chance of getting a guy we offer who's a four-star if he's from illinois then guys who are from the midwest have a northwestern offer and a notre dame offer guys who are from the midwest or the northeast like a garrett dickerson type who have a stanford offer and a northwestern offer um and then like category four being this perfect blend of guys who meet all these categories from illinois not a catholic school northwestern offer Notre Dame offer or Stanford offer. Parker Westfall is a guy who fit into this category. He was from Brook, had a Notre Dame offer. Um, we have a really strong chance, as much as a 50% chance of getting a player like that. And then lastly, looking at class of 2019 and seeing who meets this category. And um, there are certainly no sure things. Uh, there are no category four guys, sweet spot guys in this class. We are targeting um, a four-star offensive lineman from Crystal Lake, Illinois, Trevor, Trevor Keegan, and there are a quartet of guys um, from across the Midwest who have Northwestern offers and and Notre Dame offers, um, who kind of fit all of the the boxes we're checking off. And you know, you look at these guys. Um, there's an offensive lineman, Zeke Coral, from Cincinnati. There's a really big offensive lineman from Scuzz's hometown of off- of Adina, Minnesota. Come on, Quinn. Come on, you know you want to do it. You know you want to do it, Quinn, who is teetering on five-star status. There's a wide receiver um, from a public school in Indianapolis, David Bell. And again, you know, that's a little bit of of a longer shot because that is Indiana, so that's Notre Dame's home state. Um, But still, public school guy, Midwest, Northwestern offer, Notre Dame offer. And then the guy who's the most fascinating to me is a guy named Zach Harrison, who is from Lewis Center, Ohio, which is very close to Columbus, which is a red flag. But Zach Harrison has a Northwestern offer and a Notre Dame offer and a Stanford offer. And he's from Ohio and he's a defensive lineman and he attends a public school. He's basically a Fadi Adenabo,
1: except even more. Except the number one player in the state. Yes, except (laughs) even more highly rated
2: now. It's funny, Afadi, I think, was like ESPN's number one player in the state of Ohio. Some people were just in love with Afadi. But he was never as highly rated as Harrison is. Harrison is just an absolute monster recruit. He's
1: the number two defensive end in the country, too. Oh, he's
2: he's an absolute juggernaut. But if you squint really hard, you can try to be like, well, this guy's Afadi Adenabo. He certainly checks all the boxes obviously the idea of a five-star guy who plays 20 miles away from Ohio State's football stadium not going to Ohio State is a really tall order. But again, the the proper way, if there is a proper way based on my intense statistical analysis, to view these guys is to be like, look, here's a group of four players, two offensive linemen, a wide receiver, and a defensive end. Stats indicate one of these guys is going to sign with Notre Dame or Northwestern. And if one of them does sign with either Notre Dame or Northwestern, we have about a 25% chance of that kid becoming a wildcat. So again, it's something that we can just keep an eye on. It's, it's certainly a long read and a fun diversion. If you're looking for a way not to think about Northwestern hoops, um, who by the way, did not complete their amazing (laughs) comeback. Um, but, um, I, John, but
1: John, I I think what's what's ultimately really interesting is that you've put a you, you've put a um, numerical perspective on on these outcomes, and they're far better than I would have expected. And I, I think the other thing right. that is important for people to realize is that you went back 15 years, right? And it is indisputable that Northwestern is recruiting at a much higher level now. A much higher level now than they were 15 years ago. Um, so we, you know, these percentages over time, like it'd be, it'd be hard to look at just the last five years. Like there's just not enough numbers. Right. But it's very conceivable that over time, these numbers would start to creep upward.
2: Sure. And I mean, I, th- I think that's where you see us going head to head with these guys. <clears throat> right. That Notre Dame versus Northwestern number longer than 15 years ago, we did not have a 25% chance of getting <laughs> any guy in the Midwest who had a Notre Dame offer. Like that guy was not going to be like, well, maybe I'll go to Northwestern. Did not used to happen. We were not getting a Fadi Adenevo 20 plus years ago. Um, It's funny guys. to your point, uh one point that i make in the article is i cite this fact the stat that uh if we offer an in state four or five star football recruit who's from the state of illinois we have about a 20% chance of getting that guy independent of anything involving notre dame staff or anything just if he's in state we have a 20% chance of getting that guy and to discuss this point you might be like oh but is that even – is it actually higher than 20% because, like, 15 years ago it was lower than 20%? No, it's 20% because longer than 15 years ago, we didn't offer four- and five-star guys. <laughs> 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 like, the we weren't even in those battles uh, historically, you know, when you go back beyond a certain point of time. So it's like all these guys that we're targeting now um, – that 20% number is, is that's, that's, those are now numbers. Um, we didn't used to have any chance of getting these guys and now we're, we're in it. So again, it's none of these numbers are huge, but again, you get enough guys who fit a certain category and you factor in the fact that
0: we're a real legitimate destination and, and you're going to see some of these guys sign. So th- this is actually, um, to, to kind of spin this forward and, uh, you know, Wonderful article. Please check it out. Westlawpirates.com. Um, we actually had a comment, uh, on, on the article. I, I did want to bring up, uh, you know, Gary was asking, you know, it, and this is probably way more work than, uh, you're wanting to do right now after putting in all this time on, on this current piece. But, uh, and, and my wife was actually asking the, the kind of the similar question is, you know, you're looking at these numbers. You're looking at you know the, these four and five star players going to Northwestern, going to Stanford, going to Notre Dame, and it'd be interesting to kind of track them uh, throughout their individual college uh, careers and see how those progress. And obviously, there's a bajillion other factors that come into play. But uh, you know, is so Gary's asking, you know, is there a, a way we can see? How soon do these you know, four and five star players hit the field for us, for Notre Dame, for Stanford, and kind of how how do their careers develop from there? I mean, obviously, one one of our four star uh, recruits from just uh, four or five years ago uh, didn't end up doing a whole lot except come in and win a bowl game uh, when you know when Clayton Thorson got hurt, and that's Matt Alvedi. So you know, obviously. Ton of different, you know, Parker Westfall, four-star recruit. He's been plagued by injuries. That's sure. That's not anyone's fault. It's just you know the way the way it all went down. So it'd be interesting to kind of spin it forward and see, you know, who who's who's getting on the field and you know whether that could be theoretically used as a recruiting pitch to these four and five-star guys that fit into the categories that that you're looking at here to say to go into their houses and say hey look here's a bunch of other kids who are in your same situation and you you know you will get you know odds are you'll get the field before they do at their at the schools that they're going to i don't know You, you you've got the recruiting rate
1: but it's like what's the what's the hit rate on on these recruits uh you know in a in a kind of funny way Fitz might prefer to cite what's the um gainful employment rate for these guys (laughs) absolutely Absolutely.
2: yeah we should get Jacob Schmidt back on right and he can talk about right the the magic elixir that he talked to us you know once about just the the idea that right that we prepare you for so much more than football it's interesting though right I mean it's you're right there is a lot baked into that into Gary's comment and I I had a couple kind of thoughts. I mean, one, like if you look at defensive line for right now, right. I mean, traditionally, like there was a time where once upon a time we could have gone to an Ernest Brown and be like, look, what we've got for you is you'll start for four years. And, but now it's more like what we've got for you is we do a good job with defensive linemen and you're going to come in and be part of this really strong stable and we're going to do a good we're going to do right by you we're going to develop you we're going to give you a good shot at the NFL and you're going to be part of a, of a deep and strong rotation of defensive linemen um and I almost wonder if that doesn't sell better than anything but uh, you know on the other hand I I read Gary's comment and the first thing I thought is one thing that I've always kind of wondered in the back of my own mind which is Afadi Denebo had an Alabama offer and I always wonder you know Pure from a purely football standpoint, not from academics, et cetera, because I think Afadi was just a just really a perfect fit for Northwestern, and, and I think academically and, and et cetera, we we offered exactly what he wanted. Um, but from a strictly football perspective, I almost wonder. I look at a guy like Tim Williams at Alabama, who was really only used in a very specific way as part of this deep stable of brushers. And I almost wonder like if, if a went to Alabama, would he have like not played for three years, but then put up like 15 sacks as a junior where they only played him on third down in this really situation. And he was never double teamed and never facing the other team's best tackle. And you know, it's just, it's just such this big, like apples and oranges thing, but you're right. It is. It's the whole second part of it, right? Like what happens to these guys once they,
0: once they show up, but it's uh it, it's fascinating to think about. Uh, so real quick before we go, um, yeah, you know, there, there's been a little bit of talk about some potential rule changes that I just kind of wanted to bounce off you guys. Uh, rule changes that just seem to make a lot of sense as uh, stuff that, you know, really should be no-brainers. And I, I think have a, a fairly decent chance for, uh, based on the, the whispers on the wind that I keep hearing, um, stuff that, could uh, be come into play as soon as this year, but uh, two that I'd, I'd be real interested to hear your thoughts on are, um, one the thought that uh, a, a guy could play up to four games and still get a redshirt year, regardless of injury or whatnot. But I, I think that 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 to me that's a no brainer. Um, you know, you, you're giving these kids, especially for like a bowl game, right? You know, if, if they've been sitting all year, you know, you've got, you give them a, a reward for, you know, doing, you know, putting in the work all year and you can actually suit up and play in a bowl game or even at the beginning of the year, just trying to figure out, you know, who's, you know, potentially uh, up for red shirting. I, I think that would be in, in the kid's best interests almost. Yeah, I think, I think it's spectacular. I, I'm. We've long
1: been a player-oriented group of guys that um, we like to see things that help the college players uh, have agency over their own college career and their choices um, to, to you know, even the playing field between, you know, coaches that get to do basically anything, um, leave schools, et cetera, no penalties, but but – guys can't transfer or the eligibility rules are so strict i just i think this is a great i think this is great from a developmental perspective i think this is really great from if you think about an injury perspective and and helping you know helping uh spread out some of the plays and um not not make teams uh this might help teams be less um put less pressure on guys to play banged up or play through pain. And I just, I think it's, I think it's ultimately a, a really good move. I think, you know, the idea of back in the day, freshmen weren't allowed to play. And that's part of where the, the whole concept of, of red came from. So it's, it's a bit of an obsolete concept, concept, but um, I, I think this is a really smart way to, uh, like you said, Sam, you know it, it can be used as a way to reward a player, but I think it's also it gives a guy a chance to get acclimated his freshman year and still and still contribute and um and not get penalized if he plays in a couple games and then gets injured or something happens. So I ultimately I'm I'm all for this.
2: I think you know one of the names that I first thought up, and you guys can can correct me <clears throat> if I'm misremembering this, but. I immediately thought of the end of the career of um, former Northwestern workhorse running back and current leading rusher for the Montreal Alouettes, who just re-signed Tyrell Sutton. And Tyrell Sutton, who, uh, if memory serves, did not redshirt his freshman year and then was very banged up for several of his years and missed a ton of games and a big part of, I think, several seasons and was denied... A, a medical red shirt because he had, I think, you know, because he had played good parts of all four seasons and they were basically like, you're not going to get another red shirt. Um, and I was just remember kind of thinking like, this is so ridiculous. This guy graduated in four years, did not take a regular red shirt season um, and was injured a ton, but is not going to get a final year, you know, a fifth year of football because He kind of went because he basically played meaningful football in all four years. And I don't know for 100%, but I feel like at least one of those years, um, it would just be cut and dry. Be like, oh, well, he did not play, you know, he didn't play more than four games this year. So he definitely deserves another year of football. And I think that's the, that should be the spirit of the law, right? I mean, it's amongst other things, it's if there's a guy who has not been able to play, as much as he ought have been able to play for whatever reason, you're just eliminating some dumb red tape and giving him more of a chance to do it.
0: Um, In other ways of giving kids a little more agency, uh, there's been some chatter about uh, potentially getting rid of the one year waiting period after transfers. Uh, And I don't know. I, I think, You know, what I was reading is, you know, there's still not 100% if that's like forever, if that's just a one time thing uh, in college. And then you could possibly get it again as a grad. You know, that grad transfer rule could be in effect. But this basically would allow a player to transfer and play right away, which, you know, we've always been wondering, you know, why does a coach get to leave and go coach right away? And, you know, the players that he signed. Are stuck there uh, with whoever it is that comes in, whether that new coach is playing the system that fits them or not. Um, you know that it'll that would make things harder for uh, for coaching uh, staffs, but I, I, it, it does give more agency to players. I think it'd be really interesting. I am I'm a little bit more leery of this one. I.
1: I, I, I like it in principle. So, you know, kind of like what I just talked about, right? It, 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 does improve, you know, players choice that, that coaching situation thing is, has never sat right um, with me. Kind of similar to the early signing period. It feels like this, this could have some unintended side, side consequences. Um, I just, I just don't know how to feel about it. I, I like the idea of you kind of get a one shot, you know, freebie, before you would have to sit out, but I, I don't know. I just I just don't know. I almost have to see it in action before I before I really know how I feel about it. Um, just because you could you could easily see you know a group of players that decided they wanted to play together again, and it it does. Here's here's one way. Here's one critique I would make of it, and this this critique comes from from the idealistic place that I view college football um, in that this focuses more on the athlete and less on the student sure and I don't like that at the same time like the reality of college football is that it's all about the athlete and not the student anyway so you know maybe it's the lesser of two evils but um, it does it does feel like from a education standpoint this is maybe not the greatest thing to introduce
2: yeah it's tough i think i kind of come down kind of what sammy was saying whereas the guys who i definitely feel should be able to take advantage of this are guys who the that coach who recruited them left Um, if if they signed on to play under a certain administration and that coach is able to just walk and immediately pick up somewhere else Um, In Kevin Sumlin's case, while getting paid $10 million by the team that he's no longer employed by uh, and can immediately play right away, um, I I just feel like the players should have the same chance to do that. I I think even in that case, I acknowledge, just like Scud said, that there are some sticky moving parts to that and certainly beyond that. But I still feel, you know, as long as we're letting the coaches just move willy-nilly freewheel, the the players should have the same freedom.
0: Yeah, and and I, I do agree that, you know, it's a little, little more dicey, uh, and, you know, could lead to a lot of kind of back, you know, back channel, uh, continued like tampering, if you will. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that this could go a little wonky, but, uh, I I think just with a little more tweaking, I, I think, I my my biggest thing like John was saying is is that coaching uh change situation. Um you know, I I I think I would be happy if they relaxed the rules somewhat on what, you know, what necessitated a year uh a year sit out. Um I don't know. I, but I I think just if you're if you're putting it to me, should this be or should this not be? I, I I would fall on the side of more power to the kids, but I also agree that, that there should be possibly a few more tweaks before just willy nilly you're uh, you're down for whatever. So interesting, interesting stuff to think about. Um, we'll we'll see what ends up happening as uh, these rule changes come into place. Please, please, someone address the targeting situation. And the oh. inconsistencies on that i don 't want to the get us, i don't want to get us down this that rabbit hole again there'll be plenty of time for that moving forward uh, but I think for now we'll go ahead and leave it there as we continue our search for the swolly grill <laughs>
1: My final thought: I'm just I'm really excited that Kevin Sumlin is going to be in the college coaching ranks again next year. Uh, I, I've thought a lot of him over his career. He obviously had some hiccups at at A and M, and you could argue that he did not manage the post Johnny Manziel era very well there. And some of the things that maybe were allowed to slide during the Johnny Manziel era uh, hung around to haunt him. But I, this this him taking the Arizona job is such a perfect fit. Khalil Tate is tailor-made, uh, a tailor-made quarterback to, to play in, in Sumlin's system. And I think that team immediately becomes a force to be reckoned with great. You know, Rodriguez was good too, but, um, Sumlin has, has hit higher highs in my opinion, you know, being in the sec, etc., than uh, then Rich Rod did, you know, in, in the, in the old big East at West Virginia. So I think, um, this is a pretty big deal. I, I, I like Sumlin a lot. Um, I think, I'm really excited for the look of befuddlement on Herm Edwards uh Herm Edwards' face during the Territorial Cup game when um Arizona is just running, you know, circles around Arizona State and Edwards is like How, why why are they allowed to snap the ball so fast? What is happening? What this this doesn't look like football. This looks this is like flag football. What's what is going on here? And um uh, someone's just laughing on the other sideline, so that that'll be entertaining. Uh, I, it's you know it's kind of a good opportunity. Chip Chip Kelly is going to be the other you know big big coach in the South. I think there's a lot of questions with USC with Darnold leaving and and if people really believe in Clay Hilton. So we'll see how this plays out. But I think I think Arizona could reap some rewards, especially while Cleo Tate's still on campus. It, I I just want to add one other
2: final addendum to this, and it's and it's one of these almost I don't even know how to say it. Like it's not. It's, it's a story because it's not a story in a way, which is um, I bring up the fact while well, I'm dancing around this, but Herm Edwards and Kevin Sumler are both African-American head coaches, and no one is talking about that whatsoever when talking about the potential future rivalry between these two guys and the way they're facing off and everything Scuzz just said, because they shouldn't be. It should be a non-story. I bring it up only because as the NFL continues to make a total mockery of the Rooney rule, and just the everything the Raiders did, where it's just blatantly clear that they were just completely ignoring that rule, and we're always going to hire John Gruden, and we're just going to go through the motions. That you know, it's not like college football is light years ahead of the NFL in this regard. College football's got as much ground to make up as anybody, but it is great to see that you're reaching situations like this where you have several high-profile African American hires, and no one even considers for effect. The fact that they're African American, they're just big time coaches, um, and 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 in the case of S- Kevin Sumlin, coaches who can have a reasonable expectation of success at their school. <laughs> and I I guess staying in the vein of coaches who can have reasonable expectations of success, would we say
0: <laughs> de- would we
2: say decided expectations, decided schematic expectations of success? I I don't um, know if decided schematic advantage is genetic. I, I don't know either. Uh, Lane Kiffin has named as his his new offensive coordinator at Florida Atlantic, Charlie Weiss Jr. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, that in and of itself would be incredible. Charlie Weiss Jr. is 24, uh, which is amazing. I mean, as Kiffin paints it, um, he's some sort of, of prodigy, um, son of coaching royalty? I guess I'd say, um, that I I guess, you know, Lane would know. They're cut from the same cloth, son of famous coaches. Um, Lane, of course, got a lot of responsibility at a very young age, and now Charlie Weiss Jr. is going to as well. Um, It's not completely out of the blue. I think Charlie Weiss Jr. was a tight ends coach at Florida Atlantic before he was hired for a short stint um, as, I think, uh, an offensive assistant with the Atlanta Falcons, and now he's back with Florida Atlantic. So it's just wild to me, though. It's just that that Lane Kiffin and Charlie Weiss Jr. are are on the same team, um, doing the same things. is is just hysterical to me. And and if it means that, in addition, the way that Monty Kiffin kind of tools around Florida Atlantic and kind of pokes his head into meetings, if Charlie Weiss is going to be doing the same thing now, what what a flippin' circus at FAU. Uh, but, but we'll all be uh, very interested and I'm sure that's exactly the way Lane wants it
1: uh, for my final thought. I've got, I've got, B- uh, no. wait, bef- before we get there, yeah. uh, I'm really excited to have the uh, which son of a famous coach is worst debate between Weiss, uh, Bryles, Patino, and whomever else we want to lump into this category. We'll uh, we'll save that grudge match for sometimes this summer. <laughs> hey,
2: I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I know very little about Charlie Weiss Jr and because I know very little about Charlie Weiss Jr I have no problem putting him way above Art Brile's son and Rick Pitino's son. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As for my final thought I got a 2 a uh, 1 uh just real quick um I saw a report that you know the Pac-12 officials who were who called the Music City Bowl had been getting you know phone calls from uh Kentucky fans basic harassing phone calls and threatening phone calls. Come on, Kentucky guy. Get over it. Get over yourself. This is a game. It happened. Yeah, bad calls were made. Bad calls are always made. And you gotta just let... You gotta let it go, eventually. But calling and making threats to an official who was just trying to do his job... Yeah, he messed up. There were a lot of mess-ups in that game. But that, in no way, shape, or form... Justifies uh, harassing phone calls, threatening phone calls. Um, that that's just completely uncalled for, and I I'm livid that that Kentucky fans are 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 doing that. So grow the f up, Kentucky. Come on, Come on. Kentucky. Look at Louisville. You have this
2: unprecedented opportunity to claim the moral high ground. <laughs>
0: <laughs> T- take it. And, uh, for, for last of all, um, I do want, uh, kind of a somber final thought, uh, final remembrance, if you will, uh, college football lost, uh, the voice of a generation, uh, or the voice of college football, really, uh, this past week, Keith Jackson, um, passed away, uh, this past week and, you know, he was college football, you know, forever. And, you know, always was, you know, calling the Rose Bowl. Uh, year after year, um, and you knew when, when Keith Jackson was calling your game that it was an important game. And, you know, I, I, remember back to, you know, my senior year in high school, which was the, the 95 Rose Bowl run and, you know, Keith Jackson calling, I believe it was Northwestern Penn State. And it was like, well, okay, this is, this is for real here, folks. Um, you know, it, it, you know, he was, Just phenomenal and uh, definitely, you know, hope, you know, rest in peace, Keith Jackson, uh, voice of a generation. Yeah, uh,
2: for me, I think, you know, thinking back to when I was in high school too, I remember watching him call Ohio State Michigan the the game that basically won Charles Woodson the Heisman Trophy. And uh watching listening to him call all of those great Woodson plays in that game on a cold day, Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, it doesn't it just didn't get much more college football than that.
1: Uh one of our one of our friends sent us a video of a nineteen fifty eight Northwestern game, uh, between the Cats and Washington State that was called by Keith Jackson. He's obviously what, like, thirty years old or something something ridiculous, and but his voice is, is Identical. It's exactly the same as it was three years ago, um, and it was it was really fascinating to watch. You know, like, he clearly was not as polished. He was much much younger in his career, obviously, but also the game was so different in that. That he was reading off the starting lineups, um, reading every player on both sides that were starting and and intermittently commenting on pregame, almost like color commentary on pregame, like, oh, now the band is going to form the end, things of that nature. So um, not only do we get to see a little bit of uh, the Northwestern pregame, some of which drill, that drill still existed when Sam and I were, were marching uh, with Numb, but uh, we got to hear Keith Jackson actually Comment on some of it along the way, and uh, it's just it's just a pretty cool, pretty cool event. Northwestern did win that game, so it's kind of a fun one to watch. It was a big upset for the Cats back in 1958, coached by uh, Era Parsigan. Um, so you know the the era of Northwestern football that was a bit nicer to view than what transpired a couple decades later. So, anyways, definitely worth worth a, a check out. We'll link to it on our on our website as well. Um, but that was a really fun video to, to kind of celebrate Keith Jackson in a very Northwestern-specific way.
0: So that'll just about wrap it up for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com, uh, where you can leave comments and ask some questions. Uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, at Westlaw Pirates. You can call our voicemail line, 847-231-2287. That's 847-231-CATS. And give us an email at westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the west lot of Ryan field, flying the red pirate flag, because we give no quarter, especially the foreign. John Lacombe and Eric Skazbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.